Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You join us on the hollowed turf of our back garden. Sean, 13, is attempting to break his KP-Uppy record, unbeaten for the last two years. Looking good, Sean. Three more to go. Oh no, pitch invader, late drama here as he's stolen the ball. Adidas tracksuit and trainers from Littlewoods, Ireland. <sighs> Own goal by Buster. Shop the brands you love at littlewoodsireland.ie We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. Hi everybody, welcome back to Murder in the Land of Oz. My name is Jess. My name is Ellen. <laughs> Why do we sound so weird doing that? I'm very not used to like pronouncing my name to people. Most Layla people I talk to know like, what my name is. She would. Jess had a cat on her lap and she felt the touch of Jesus for the first time. It's been a long couple of months in isolation. I haven't yes. felt the touch of a man since February. I'm getting a bit lonely i'm very sad to hear that i'm really worried that uh, we're recording this two weeks in advance and i'm worried that a massive earth event is gonna have transpired in the past two weeks well knowing 2020 it probably will be so i just want to i just want to extend my heart out to all the uh asteroid victims out there wow we really didn't we didn't think that it could get worse but it did i'm so sorry you guys we're overrun Um, by giant ants we really, I mean, that that was on my 2020 fuck up bingo card, but I'm sure it was not on a lot of other people's. Yeah. So. Well, whatever's going on, I hope we're all still kicking, still I breathing. Alive. I hope I enjoyed going to the pub for the first time. I hope I'm doing okay three months. catching the bus to work again. Mm. Not working from home. How, what's up? How is everyone? Pause. Oh, I'm enslaved by the same ant overlord. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to see you guys in the factories. Uh, I hope they just have a good sense of humor, the ant overlords. I hope they're like true crime podcasts. <laughs> They'll be like, what are you good for? What are you good for, human? And I'll be like, Absolutely. oh, boy, not much. <laughs> Ugh, not a great deal. Well, Not a great deal. Um, Hello. Welcome back. Um things to tell you patreon if you would like to send Do us it. some money to you know help us fund our podcast work you can 
Um, we have Patreon-only content. You can um, suggest cases on there. You can have a bit of a dialogue between Ellen looks after the Patreon, so it's Ellen who you'll um, be speaking to. Um, you'll be speaking to on an extremely, increasingly infrequent basis. Exactly. Because I am so bad. I forget it exists until somebody <laughs> says a word like that sounds similar. And I'm like, oh, God, I have to reply to 55 messages. <laughs> Um, and then we do obviously have our Instagram and as if you, um, that's me cause I'm constantly on Instagram. Yep. Twin D47. Um, and then we also have our email murder on the land of us at gmail.com. So if you have anything that you'd like to chat to us about, send it through there. I, I wonder if, email, oh, so you know I'll what? get back to you by August. The next two weeks. I wonder if we're going to like get any people, any psychic hate from last episode. Maybe that's what we're dealing with. No, because the psychics would have already known that we were going to do that episode. Um, and so they've had time to process it and get over it. Right. Um, I realized that it was so hypocritical of me to like rat ass on psychics when I have literally like emailed ghost hunters for this podcast. <laughs> uh, ghosts are I'm different though. Yeah, ghosts are real. Anyway, should we talk? Should we do it? Are we ready? (laughs) Yeah, I'm ready. What you got for me this week, Ellen? This is actually really apropos because I actually got this case from messaging a patron. Um, Stunning. You know it works. I know. Me messaging. So I was talking to our lovely patron, Betsy. She's a stunner. We love her so much. Not that we have favorites, but oh, she's up there. Um, So she told me the story about her nana and her papa, right? So her nana worked as like a live-in nurse on like a cattle station um, in South Australia back in the good old days. And she was basically hired there because um, there had been like a couple of murders in the area. And like she was hired basically to be like a companion for the for the wife and children that were there because like the husband's gone doing cattle stuff for like periods of time and mm-hmm. like it like people were like mm, maybe we should have a little bit more we should beef off this place with some security in the form of Betsy's nana, um, <laughs> and then so while she was working there she so betsy's papa was working on another cattle station that a murder occurred at and then afterwards nan uh nana betsy's nana not my nana and betsy's papa met and they fell in love and they got married um and i was like well betsy that's a great story i want to find out about the uh murder that happened at the station that your papa worked at severely overestimating my skills as a researcher I found absolutely nothing, um, but the other f- really famous murder that happened was the Sundown Murders. Oh. So that is the case that I am going to be talking to you about tonight. And it's really like, it's me all over because it happened on a cattle station and it happened also in the past. So <laughs> insert McLeod's daughter's theme tune. <laughs> It'll take some time to find your heart and come back home. <laughs> Oh, just just. Oh, I just, didn't just talk about off. in the last episode how I went rural for the weekend. Just did go rural for the weekend. I went and to Kyogle. Do we have any listeners in Kyogle? Probably not. No, actually, I lie. I got Holly's sister onto it. She's a big um, true crime uh, podcast listener. So that's great. Hi, Penny. If you're listening, 
We should do, for our first ever meetup, we should for sure go to Kyogre and hit up the, oh, we don't have a name for our fans. Hit up the P, the fan base, the oh, large fan base. Okay. We need a, we need a fan name then. Do we though? Yes, we do. If you what have about, any suggestions. Wait, I've got it. Stop it. I've got it. Mitt Losers. <laughs> Zane, we've come up with our fan base name, Mitt Losers. <laughs> and by we, I mean Ellen Rose <laughs> Literally just me just then. God, I'm so good at stuff. Anyway, the Sundown Murders, anybody? Let's do it, yep. So Pete and Sally Bowman were the managers of Glen Helen Station in the Northern Territory. Um, and very interestingly, neither of them went by their actual names. So Pete's real name was Hubert. We can probably understand why he went by Pete. Um, and Sally's real name, Sally's real name was Sally, but she went by Thyra. So... Th- <laughs> Yes, Thyra and Pete, not Sally and Hubert, uh, had two daughters, uh, Wendy, who was age 14, and Marion, who was, I think, age 26. I had to go on an Ancestry research website to find anything out about Marion Bowman, and not even they were sure, so I'm going to say she's 26. So in November of 1957, the Bowman family were visited by a family friend named Thomas Whelan, who was 22. There is absolutely fuck all information about their lives and personalities and who they were as individuals. Um, I'm sure they were all very lovely people and I could not find anything about them. But that's their names and ages. Um, So they were visited by their friend Thomas Whelan. And during the course of Thomas's visit, it was decided that the Bowmans would travel back with Thomas to Alice Springs and then go on with him to Adelaide. So the Bowmans, Thomas Whelan, and the Bowmans' two dogs set off in a standard vanguard sedan. They arrived in Alice Springs on the 4th of December, 1957. And from there, Pete and Marion would take a flight from Alice Springs to Adelaide. And Thyra, Wendy, and Thomas, plus their two dogs, would continue the journey by car. Could you imagine, like, flying over Alice Springs? That'd be wild. Imagine driving through it. That is literally my dream. Um, too many murders. Too, I mean, yes. Your chance of being murdered if you fly over Alice Spring is reduced in comparison to driving. But also, you just don't get to get out amongst the country. Um, so, today, the drive from Alice Springs to Adelaide takes about 15 hours. But it probably would have taken a little bit longer back in the day. Because the road was mostly, or like in parts, it was just like an unsealed track. It was not the Stuart Highway that we know and love it to be today. Um, so Pete didn't start to get super anxious until it had been three days until the trio was due to arrive in Adelaide. So he got in touch with the various roadhouses that were along the way, but nobody had seen them or their car. So he contacted the police and a search was begun. So the last definitive sighting of the trio occurred at Kogira Station, which is 21 kilometers north of the South Australian border. Um, and it's kind of like the last border town I guess I don't know if it still is today but in 1958 it was the last place to get petrol and fuel up and buy a bottle of coke and a glass I assume um, before you had to travel further down the road so they were seen they are uh, on the 5th of December getting petrol and they were traveling in a southwards direction towards the border so the police searched by air and on land and they used an RAAF Lincoln bomber plane as well as the Flying Doctor aircraft to search the area between Colgara Station and um, Kingunya, which is about 600 kilometres south down the Stewart Highway. So f- quite a large land area 
of like rural central Australian desert with your odd shrub, probably quite a few red kangaroos bounding along there. Um, but a lot the of land open of space. The truly, genuinely, literally the land of not that much. So uh, two police Land Rovers were searching the tracks that come off the main road and workers um, and station hands and stuff like that um, in the area were also uh, helping to search on the ground. So initially the police thought that the odds of finding the group alive and well were pretty good because they had plenty of money with them and they had also uh, six gallons of fresh water. They had six gallons of water when they left their home so they're not necessarily thinking that these people are going to have been struck down by the territory heat um, but after six days of searching there was still no trace of either uh, Wendy Thyra or Thomas or their vehicle and police were truly like a little bit baffled they were kind of like these people have literally disappeared without a trace and like there's not that many places that they could conceivably they could be so Pete Bauman offered a reward of £1,000 for any person with information that would lead to the discovery of his family. Uh, no witnesses came forward at this time. Uh, on the on December 13th, a crew conducting an air search in the RAAF Lincoln bomber spotted the Vanguard sedan stopped under a cluster of trees at deserted Sundown Station, which is about 40 miles south of Kilgira Station on the South Australian side. So pilot officer Richardson said that he flew, he flew kind of low over the top of the sedan to try and, you know, see if anybody like popped their head out of it or like get any attention of who might be in the car, but he couldn't, he didn't get any attention. Mm -hmm. So he flew like 15 kilometers up the road and dropped a note to these two people who were like in their car. And the note was like, Hey, go 15 miles back down the road and check out this abandoned car, please. I am on a plane and cannot do it myself. So the two men in the car like Hold did on. what they were he told. He dropped a note from a plane. Maybe on a rope. <laughs> he dropped it down somehow. <laughs> he was flying low. He was flying low. <laughs> yeah. He like unfurls the ladder or something. Um, so the two men in the car did the, what they were told. They drove back to the location. Um, and the trees, although it was possible to like be seen from overhead, they said that it was quite – the the trees really obscured the vehicle from the road. Right. This was a place that had, like, this road, it was off the road. People had traveled past it, you know what I mean? But, like, mm -hmm. the, the trees just made it that they could not see the car from the road. Um, so the sign that Pilot Officer Richardson told them was if they find anything that's concerning or they raise an alarm to wave a white flag, literally. So the men go and find their cards and start frantically waving their white handkerchiefs. And then Pilot Officer Richardson radioed for the ground police. So... The police, uh, in addition with um, a lot of trackers, uh, some Indigenous trackers and also people who worked like on the stations and stuff like that, who were pretty experienced with tracking animals, mm -hmm. came to assist the police. Mm -hmm. So they found the car and then from that location, trackers noticed footsteps in the soil, uh, which had been somewhat um, impacted by quite heavy rainfall that had occurred in the area in previous days. So the tracks... Uh, went a short distance from the car to where the bodies of Thyra, Wendy and Thomas had been stashed underneath a canvas tarp and a pile of branches. So the trackers identified two sets of prints uh, that they determined to be a man's and a woman's, mostly based on the size, uh, that went from the Vanguard sedan to where the bodies were hidden. There were also the remains of two campfires, one believed to be used by the Bowmans and Thomas Whelan, and then one that they believed had been used by another party. 
So police believe that Thyra, Wendy and Thomas had arrived at the campsite at Sundown Station at around 5pm on the 5th of December. And the police believe that the killer murdered them, based on the clues at the site, which were not many, the police believe that the killer had murdered them at the campsite and then bundled the bodies inside the Bowman's car and then drove it to the site where the bodies were dumped. Then went to great lengths to park the car in a location where it would be obscured from the road. Uh, of course, the post-mortem examination conducted not long after the bodies were found indicated that Thyra and Thomas Whelan had been shot several times each and Wendy Bowman had been shot once. They had all been beaten to death. They had all been beaten before death and were likely shot while lying down. The police found a 22 caliber rifle that had belonged to the victims stashed underneath Thomas Whelan's body and it was broken like in half and police believed that it had been jammed by shoving like a cartridge into the like shooting part oh still have not bothered to educate myself at all about guns <laughs> since doing this podcast for almost two years still don't know anything about it so yeah they were like mm, big serious crime a whole bunch of a lot of detectives a lot of locals and a few like forensics experts 1950s forensics experts including a fingerprint expert all noted the scene and a very curious finding was that it seemed as though the vehicle had been washed like there were no fingerprints found at all in the interior and the exterior of the car. Ooh. So, ah. uh, to- yeah. So while they were searching the area, they located a second campsite about 21 kilometers north of the murder scene, which they, the police initially believed the perpetrator had possibly used, using the campfire there to dispose of his bloodstained clothing. So the Adelaide, so this like made the news big time. So there was, there was, many many articles in various uh local newspapers and also national newspapers about the search for thyra wendy and thomas it was actually the biggest search that had ever been conducted in terms of length and also number of participants um in australia at that time um and there was definitely like a i read all of this research is done from newspapers at the time there is not a lot of information out there about this case in particular um just the old newspapers and there was definitely very much like a change in tone from you know wow all of these people are getting together to look for these missing people we hope these travelers are okay to a terrible crime has been committed like people were very much shocked and taken aback and horrified by these murders which had just seemed to have been committed completely senselessly and randomly so the Adelaide Advertiser offered up a £500 reward for information that would lead to the conviction of the perpetrator. Um, and they did so because Pete Bowman had been a former employee at 5AD, which was the city advertiser broadcasting network station. And Thomas Whelan had actually been an employee there at the time of their death, at the time of his death. So he, the network was like, okay, well, you know, these were people that we knew. We're going to offer up £500. Uh, Brian Bowman, who is Pete Bowman's brother and the owner of Glen Helen Station, on which the Bowmans worked, offered up, offered up an additional £4,500, bringing the total reward offered to £5,000, which was the largest reward offered since the £10,000 reward for the Kelly Gang 80 years prior. I was about to say, that sounds like your old mate. <laughs> sounds like me old mate Ned. I'll shoehorn him into any case I can. <laughs> So police are pretty certain um, for a range of reasons, but mostly due to the fact that this location was very isolated, that the perpetrator had fled the scene in a car. This was supported by the finding of vehicle tracks not belonging to the Bowman. So trackers had identified that there was 
the tracks from the Bowman's car, an additional set of four-wheel tracks, and then another set of two-wheel tracks not far behind. So this indicated that they like were a on bicycle? the lookout. No, a car towing a trailer. Oh, right. Okay. So like four wheels and then another set of wheels immediately was behind. Like a murderer escaping from a cattle station? It was a- actually two three-year-olds on a set of tricycles. It was so, it was just senseless. Um, so yes, they're on the lookout for a car towing, towing a two-wheeled trailer. And a witness had stated that they had seen a green Zephyr, uh, a gray Zephyr towing a green trailer in Alice Springs around the time of the murder. So the Zephyr is very much like like the 1950s like car that like the people in the Incredibles had like the very like right okay <clears throat> 1950s car. Um, so this sighting very much became the focus of the investigation. So Zephyr's pretty popular car. Quite a few people doing driving holidays around the NT at the time, towing trailers and caravans and stuff like that. So there was quite a few sightings of various people in Zephyr's, but police. Police were particularly wanting to pursue a man and a woman who had been sighted driving a grey Zephyr around the time of the murder that had actually failed to stop for police when they were indicated to. So they talked to police in uh, neighbouring states and a roadblock had been set up in Queensland because this is where this couple had said that they were going to be. Um, But the police said, the Queensland police said that the couple in question were never caught by the roadblock themselves and that the police had been surprised by just how many grey zephyrs towing trailers there actually were (laughs) crossing the border into Queensland. The police weren't the only ones on the lookout. The Sydney Morning Herald said that the murders had brought a, quote, Wild West atmosphere to the outback. So this is why Betsy's nana was hired (laughs) because everybody was like, Nobody knows who's going to be next. Uh, women right. who were left alone in homesteads had taken to keeping loaded rifles on their kitchen benches because women be in the kitchen, am I right? And <laughs> stockmen and station masters who were already accustomed to being armed were keeping backup rifles in their cars. So the Wild West vibe was increased by what the Herald described as, quote, an increasing wave of lawlessness occurring in the Northern Territory at the time. So unemployed or underemployed itinerant workers had apparently been coming in droves from the cities looking for work at stations or whatever. And an alleged incident had occurred six months prior to the sundown murders, wherein a businessman heading south from Alice Springs was held up by, quote, five new Australians who had created a roadblock with their car. The five men demanded uh, petrol from the businessman, and when he asked why they hadn't gotten petrol at Kulgara Station, one of the men replied, because we have no money. The businessman let the five blokes take only as much petrol as would get them to Alice Springs. So there was very much like, I got the sense that people being held up on the highway was not necessarily an unknown thing, um, and that people in the area at the time were concerned due to the influx of people who had I mean the thing is is that like you're like oh held up for petrol money what the fuck but like you were literally 800 kilometers minimum away from a real city like if you're trapped and you don't have money to fill up your car and you run out of petrol you'll like yeah you'll you'll die so it was pretty dire circumstances so a lot of people with no money and no work in somewhat desperate circumstances we're creating this atmosphere of lawlessness so nothing would come of the hunt for the Grey Zephyr until more than a month after the murders on the 22nd of January 1958. 
So Detective Glenn Hallahan of the Mount Isa Police stopped a black DeSoto vehicle towing a caravan driving through the main street of Mount Isa. And Mount Isa is only a few hundred kilometres east of the Northern Territory-Queensland border. The driver of a car, a 25-year-old man named Raymond John Bailey, as well as Bailey's wife and child, were detained. And Bailey was a carpenter and itinerant worker with no fixed address who had been on the go for some time looking for work. And he had been working at the hospital, doing some construction work on the hospital in Mount Isa for about a month when he came to the attention of police. So the South Australian police had received a report in early January from another witness stating that they had seen a black car towing a caravan in the vicinity of the murders um, on December 5th, 1957. So Not a Zephyr. Not a grey Zephyr towing a trailer, but a black car with a caravan. Okay. And so ever since re- receiving this report, the South Australian police were like, oh, shit. So they had been tracking the movements of this black DeSoto since early January, and they had searched uh, a whole, like, dozens of similar cars um, in the South Australia area trying to find this one particular sedan. So the vehicle and its occupants had been reported to have been seen at Wiramina Station, which is 115 miles north of Port Augusta, in late November. It was seen, reported to be seen again in Cooper Pedy, where the couple um, in the car bought opals from a seller and then attempted to resell them to passing motorists. And they had been quite chatty with people and conversational and had said that they had been able to find work in either Adelaide or Port Augusta. They had told motorists that they were heading on either to Alice Springs, Darwin or Mount Isa. Uh, one witness said that the man had given his name as Bailey and that they'd seen a rifle on the front seat of his car. So, Raymond Bailey was arrested and charged, uh, on, this is on the 21st of January, was arrested and charged with possession of an unlicensed firearm, as well as obtaining a car by false pretenses. He appeared in court on the 23rd of January and was remanded into custody until January 30, 30th, a week later. Two detectives, Detective Moran and Detective Hopkins of the South Australian Police, were flown via, via Royal Flying Doctor Service. I'm assuming there were no other planes. They just use the Royal Flying Doctors for everything. Um, Get planes, cops. So they were flown via Royal Flying Doctor to Mount Isa to question Raymond Bailey about this in connection with the Sundown murders. So by the 24th of January, he had been charged with the murder of Thyra Bowman. On the 30th of January, Bailey was flown from Mount Isa to Alice Springs and then from Alice Springs to Adelaide in order to face trial. And on that same day, police began another search of the murder scene, this time for a discarded rifle believed to be the murder weapon. So, Bailey first appeared in court on the 1st of February 1958, and he was remanded into custody until the 14th of February for the murder of Thyra Bowman. And he was also officially charged with the whole getting a car under false pretenses thing. So, what happened there is that, in my limited understanding of both the law and of cars, it seemed to me... (laughs) that Raymond Bailey had gone to this place, Renmark Motors, and offered up a ute as collateral so that he could get the DeSoto, which cost about 300 pounds, but the ute wasn't actually his. So he was like, yes, you, you, I'm a trustworthy man. Look at my ute that I own, but he did not own the ute. Uh, so the, the preliminary hearing or the committal hearing began on the 26th of February. Crown Prosecutor Mr. E.B. Scarf informed the courts that the three victims had been battered and shot while they were lying on the ground. 
evidence found at the scene of the crime, as well as statements that Bailey had given to the police when he was in custody in Mount Isa, would form the basis of the Crown's case. Thomas Whelan had been shot three times, twice in the back and once in the head, and Thyra and Wendy were shot once. The magistrate, Mr. Clark, some of these details are slightly different from what was reported in the newspapers. So I think the official story is the story um, of the court case and some of the less official stuff was stuff that was reported in the newspaper like the day after. So the magistrate, Mr. Clark, had previously rejected an application from Raymond Bailey's counsel, who was a man named Mr. Pickering, um, to have the hearing held in private, fearing that information published would prejudice any particular ju- potential jury members. Um, but the police, the magistrate was like, nah, bro, I don't care. Let him, let him read the papers. The court also heard at this preliminary hearing from Pete Bowman, who told the court that the jammed rifle found underneath Thomas Whelan's body had been inside the Vanguard sedan when they had left Alice Springs, along with two boxes of 50 cartridges. Frank Wilson, who was the storekeeper at Kogira, said that he had seen Thyra, Thomas and Wendy when they had come to get petrol on the 5th of December, and the next day he had seen a car and a caravan. He said that the car and the caravan were the same as the ones that were currently parked in the Adelaide Watch House yard, and he could identify it due to a unique spotlight attached to the car's bumper. On the second day of the hearing, a man named Noel Cuthard, who was a stockman, one of the trackers who had helped police, and the son of the owner of Kogira Station testified that he had been the one to find the tracks which led to the discovery of the three bodies he also saw that he said he also said that he saw men's footprints leading from a set of tracks from a car and a trailer to the spot where the victim's car had been abandoned and then back to the main road he also said that there were tracks made by a woman with about a size four shoe leading from the victim's car to the main road he also gave some evidence about his experience as a tracker and kind of talked about the circumstances of the search, saying that about 15 people in total, including seven Indigenous trackers, were out searching in the bush. The following day, Sydney Staines, another pastoralist and tracker, was shown a pair of well-worn men's shoes in court and stated that they were consistent with the men's tracks made in the vicinity of the vanguard. The left shoe was slightly more turned up on the toe and worn down on the left side of the heel, which was consistent with the tracks. I have no idea how you make that determination from tracks that have been rained on for three days, but I trust Sydney Staines. Uh, A man named David Illis said that Bailey was known to him prior to the murders and that in September of 1957, he had purchased a 22 caliber rifle and had shot it a few times at the snake. And he had gone shooting on occasion with Raymond Bailey with this rifle. Shortly after, he offered to sell the rifle to Bailey, and Bailey had taken it, but he never paid for the rifle. Illers had taken an officer to the location where he shot the snake, and they had collected the spent cartridges, and they later would use the cartridges taken from the snake and compare them to the cartridges found at the murder scene, and they were consistent with each other. Police ballistics expert Henry Patterson said that the bullets taken from Thomas Wheeland matched a 22 caliber Huntsman rifle. He was then given a selection of bullets and said that in his opinion, they had all come from the same rifle. Um, And these include the bullets that had been found at the scene and uh, additional bullets that were found in the Black DeSoto. Detective Glenn Hallahan was called to give his evidence and Bailey reacted very poorly when he did so, crying out from the docks, can I leave the court? He is telling lies. He then turned to address Hallahan directly and said, tell the truth, that's all I want. 
Pickering, who is Bailey's lawyer, said to the judge that the rest of Hallahan's testimony should be given to a closed court as it contained information that had been given to him from Bailey in an interrogation. And if the information was to be published, it would prejudice potential jurors. And this time, Magistrate Clark was like, "Mm, excellent point. Get out of my courtroom. And so Hallahan would give the remainder of his evidence to a closed court. On March 4th, 1958, uh, Magistrate Clark committed Bailey to stand trial for the murder of Thyra Bowman. The case of obtaining a car under false pretenses was dismissed due to lack of evidence, but not because there was no evidence, but because Scarf, the prosecutor, was basically like, fuck it, we got him for the big one. We're not going to worry about getting him on the car charge. So the trial proper would begin on the 13th of March, 1958. On the second day of the trial, Crown Prosecutor Scarf read out the long statement that Raymond Bailey had given to Detective Glenn Hallahan while, while he was charged at Mount Isa Station. Uh, Bailey had claimed that he had been driving along in his car and pulling the caravan behind him along the Alice Springs Adelaide Road driving north. He saw a Vanguard sedan parked on the left side of the road with a campfire burning nearby. He saw a middle-aged woman and a young man who walked over to him. A teenage girl stayed by the fire. Bailey parked his car about a quarter mile further north. His wife went to bed in the caravan. At around 10pm, Bailey took out his rifle and walked down towards the camp. He saw three people lying down and heard a noise behind him as he was passing through the camp. He turned around spooked and fired his gun. He didn't know what the noise was, but it sounded like a dog growling. After he shot, the man jumped up, made a noise and fell down again. And Bailey thought that he had killed the man. He then said, quote, I just went mad after that. When I did this, I thought I would have to kill the lot and cover it up. The woman and the girl, disturbed by the events, then got up and rushed towards him. Uh, He looked to see whether or not the man was dead and then took his rifle and aimed it at the older woman who fell straight away. He loaded, aimed and shot again at the girl who fell instantly too. He then put the three bodies into the vanguard and put the canvas, blankets and other bits and pieces he could find from the camp in it too. He then drove it into the scrub on the other side of the road, went in, quote, a fair way, and took the bodies and the canvas out of the back. He laid the bodies out and put the canvas and blankets over the bodies. He then returned to his car, had a bath in the caravan, and went to bed. And when his wife asked him where he had been, he told her that he had been sick. The next morning, he put bags of wheat over his feet in an attempt to cover his tracks, and went back to where he'd killed the people and saw two dogs tied up and shot them too. He said that he threw the rifle away when he was nearing Alice Springs. And he said that he had stolen about 25 pounds from the man's wallet and thrown that away too, somewhere between Tennant Creek and Mount Isa. He and threw he the money away or the wallet? The money. The, he left the wallet with Thomas Wheeland. He just took 25 pounds out. But there was, I believe Thyra had like 30 pounds on her person. There was 500 pounds in the car, which was not taken. And she also had like an expensive diamond ring and a few other bits of jewelry and things that weren't stolen. So he told the police in Mount Isa when they were questioning him that it had been an accident and that he felt that he had to kill the woman as they were witnesses. The next day of the trial, so that was that was Bailey's statement that he gave to the police in Mount Isa. The next day, Brian Bowman, bro- brother of Pete Bowman, said that um, at the murder scene, he had seen a repeater rifle that was known to him that had been previously used by Wendy Bowman and Thomas Whelan both. And he said that they all knew that if more than six cartridges were loaded into the rifle, it would jam on the first shot. So it was not necessarily that the rifle was 
intentionally jammed, but that a person who didn't know about this little defect had possibly tried to use the rifle, but jammed it accidentally. Brian Bowman also said that he believed that a woman had driven the vanguard away from the murder scene as there were men's tracks leading to and from the car, but women, the women's tracks went only to the car. Uh, Roy Colthard, who was the owner of Colgara Station and another one of the many randos who did the tracking on this case, said that there was no possibility that the tracks could have been confused by any made by the searchers at the scene as the rain had caused the old tracks to like crust over. And so they were distinct from the new tracks being made by the searchers. Dr. Dwyer, a pathologist, said that Thyra Bowman's skull had been fractured before she died. Um, and Constable Evans of the Udenata Police said that he had searched near the camp and followed tracks which had led to the body of two dogs. In that area, he also found a calendar card. I don't know what that is. A spaghetti tin, which looked like it had been left there recently. And near the campfire, he found part of a rifle cleaner and some empty cartridge cases. On the third day of the trial, David Illis again said that he had known Raymond Bailey and said that he was, quote, a pretty good marksman. He said that he had met Bailey in September or October of the previous year, working on wheat stacks at Rula, and they'd become friends. And he said that Bailey had taken a 22 caliber Huntsman rifle belonging to Illis when he left the job. Uh, then a fingerprint expert, Mr. O'Neill, told the court that he had examined the murder scene and had been able to find a fingerprint anywhere. He did not find anything. He found a few finger smudges, but he did not find any workable, like nothing, like it had been wiped down. And he had examined the victim's car, a hubcap, an oil drum, an alarm clock, a broken rifle, the spaghetti tin, and a spade. And the only item that he found anything on were a few smudges found on the clock, but nothing that could be used to identify anyone. On the 20th of May, 1958, Raymond Bailey read out his own statement from the dock. He began his statement with his backstory, saying that he was born in Gilgandra in New South Wales and his parents were well-known and respected in Dubbo. He had left Dubbo sometime in the previous year and he said, yes, I had received a 22 caliber Huntsman rifle from David Illis, but he had disposed of it prior to the murders uh, somewhere around Cooper Pedy. He said that he had indeed been traveling northwards to Alice Springs and he had seen the Vanguard sedan parked on the left side of the road. He spoke briefly to the man and woman, and the man and woman then drove off and did not return to the scene. In response to whether or not his wife had made the tracks in the dirt leading towards the vanguard, he said that she was actually unable to drive a car. And Jess and I were like, mood. <laughs> he said Even that. Even though Eleanor Sorensen does officially have her learners. Yeah, I learned how to do a three point turn the other day. Watch out. Uh, he said that he had been working in Mount Isa. Yeah, he told the court that he'd been working in Mount Isa when the police came to find him and he said that when he was taken to this station he was separated from his wife and put into a room where he couldn't see her but he could hear her he was questioned until after midnight and could hear his wife crying in the other room the entire time he was then locked in a padded cell and could hear his wife being questioned the next day he was questioned until about 8 p.m he was told he said that he was told that they were still questioning his wife and that he wouldn't be allowed to see her until he signed a confession and that they wouldn't stop questioning him until they wouldn't stop questioning his wife until he did so. Detective Moran typed up a statement and asked Bailey to sign it, which he did. He was then told to write yes after a few questions at the end of the statement, but he said he couldn't recall whether or not he wrote the yeses or if they were written for him. For him. He said, quote, I was in such a state at the time I would have done anything they told me to. 
the reason why I signed the confession was so they would stop questioning my wife and leave us both alone. So that is kind of the summary of the evidence of the case. So in the closing statements, Crown Prosecutor Scarf said that what had actually happened the night of the murder would probably never be known. His theory was that Bailey had attempted to hold up Thyra, Wendy and Thomas, but when Thomas Whelan reached for the rifle, Bailey shot him in the back. He then clubbed Thyra and Wendy with Whelan's gun, shot them, put them in the vanguard and hid the bodies after he had helped himself to Whelan's wallet. He also said that while Bailey's own testimony was damning, the prosecution didn't need to rely on that alone because the body of evidence backed them up. Mr. Pickering for Bailey said that circumstantial evidence was, quote, like a circle, and any time the circle didn't close, the accused was entitled to the benefit of the doubt. He said that Bailey admitted to being at the scene, so tracks that matched him or his vehicle didn't really mean anything. He said that the murder weapon was never produced, and that Bailey had said that he had had not had the weapon at the time of the murder. So the cartridges, being similar to a rifle he was known to have had, also didn't necessarily mean anything. And he warned the jury that circumstantial evidence could lead to false conclusions. On the 21st of March 1958, Raymond Bailey was found guilty of the murder of Thyra Bowman and sentenced to death by hanging. The jury took just 96 minutes to deliberate and the trial itself had taken just over a week. Wow, quick. Quick. They rushed through them back in the day. They were like, science doesn't exist yet. We don't need to tell 12 idiots. We don't need to explain the intricacies of like DNA and like bloodstain analysis to a whole bunch of like teachers and like just like people who We've work in this expert coals. he's come to talk we, about red jackets yep let's hear him out for four and a half hours yep and then get somebody else to refute all of that evidence with also stuff that the jury doesn't understand so that's why they could whip through them back in the day so bailey apparently showed no emotion when the verdict was given and left the court without any kind of reaction really Mr. Pickering informed the court that Bailey would be appealing the decision, which he did so in early June. The appeal had several grounds, but the main thrust of it was basically that his confession was coerced. Pickering said that Bailey was placed into custody at 6.20pm on January 21st, questioned till after midnight, questioned the following day from 10.30 until 12.15, before Bailey was given the caution that he was not actually required to answer any questions. So we don't have that, like, Miranda rights, like... Anything you always can will be used and against you, whatever against it is. In a court of law. Um, but you do have to caution people of their rights still. So he was questioned for several hours on the 21st and then questioned for a couple of hours the following day before he was ever cautioned. And this caution was given to Bailey after he had said, I shot the young chap, which was like the, the pl- like once he said that, the police were like, We got him, boys. Like, Welcome, and then, boys. And then was like, oh, by the way, you just don't you don't have to tell us anything. Um, so that was the thrust of his appeal, basically, which the court dismissed. Um, but they did allow Bailey a week's stay of execution when on June 14th, Bailey informed the court that he was not the killer, but he had actually killed the real killer when he saw a man burying Thyra Bowman. So... Okay. Yeah, his new story was like, oh, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, I didn't do it, but I know who did do it, and I can lead you to the weapon I used to kill this person with. He said that he had buried a bloodstained knife under a tree near where the Vanguard sedan was found. The police were like, okay, I think we have to do this due to, like, the whole, like, due process laws and stuff. 
So they took Bailey back to the scene um, and organized a search so that he could lead police to this crucial piece of evidence that would literally exonerate him from this crime. Um, but after three hours, a team of 40 policemen, indigenous trackers, stockmen, lawyers, and a doctor were first forced to stop the search when they found nothing. And when they asked Bailey, like they'd gone to a couple of sites, and when they asked Bailey, like, is this the one? Bailey simply said, I have nothing more to say. Bailey was then taken to the lookout like, We're house. out in the sun. Like, it's, it's hot. hot. <laughs> There's not a lot to look at. Like, I'm kind of bored. <laughs> so. Bailey was taken to the lockup at Alice Springs for the night before being sent back to Adelaide Jail. On the 25th of June, 1958, Raymond John Bailey was hanged for the murder of Thyra Bowman. He had been visited by his two brothers the evening prior, the only visitors he had received during his incarceration except for a priest. And that was that on Raymond Bailey until the wild years of the early 2000s <laughs> when... <laughs> When writer and investigative journalist Stephen Bishop wrote a book called The Most Dangerous Detective, The Outrageous Stephen Glenn Patrick Bishop. Hallahan. Stephen Bishop. I'm just trying to figure out where we know that name from. From writing crime books, probably. Mm, probably. So here's the trouble. Okay. Glenn Hallahan, the outrageous Glenn Patrick Hallahan, makes him sound like a drag star, which <laughs> is not what he was. So, Glenn Hallahan, who was the detective, the Mount Isa detective who initially grabbed Bailey, was an officer in the Queensland Police Force in the 1950s, which unfortunately <gasps> meant that he was... Fitzgerald Inquiry! He was corrupt as all shit. Like, they all ding, ding, were. Ding, 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 Police corruption, police corruption. Ding, 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 ding. So, people who haven't listened to our very questionable back catalogue may not have listened to the Queensland episodes. They may not have heard us talk about all the shifty shifties that were going on in Queensland in like the 30s to I want to say the 80s with the police. If you've got a father who's a father or a male figure in your life and you just utter the words Fitzgerald Inquiry, boy, they go and tell you. mate of mine, Robert, he actually worked on the Fitzgerald Inquiry. He knew a few of those cops who were up at the National Hotel. He was actually approached by uh, Frankie Bishop and Bill. Everybody has a story like that. Everybody has a fucking story about the Fitzgerald Inquiry. Everybody has a story about the Fitzgerald Inquiry. So we did talk about it in a previous episode. Also, you can read so many things about it online, so I'm not mm-hmm. going to go into super big detail. But the main gist of it is that every every police officer was corrupt and bad and, like, hiring prostitutes and, like, fabricating evidence and, like, running, like, literal, like, liquor rackets on the side when they should have been. Wow, corrupt police? Who knew? Luckily, we don't have anything like that in 2020. Um <laughs> So when Hallahan was uh, questioned in the trial, he allegedly said that he had no idea that the black sedan he was on the lookout for was actually connected to the sundown murders. He just knew that they were on the lookout for a black sedan with a caravan. So when he saw the car and he saw Bailey, they staked it out for a little while. And then when Bailey and his wife approached it, he went and was like, hi, can you come with us, basically? So he saw the rifle in the car and everything like that and he took Bailey in on the car and the gun charge and then another detective who was based in Brisbane Inspector Norman Bauer told Hallahan well, the gist that I got was that he heavily he told Hallahan to um, hold Bailey in remand for eight days until this decision was made so for something like the the rifle and the car charge and everything like that it would not be that usual for somebody to be held in remand for a week because of that 
So then Bauer, who again was based not in Mount Isa, just happened to go up to Mount Isa for an unrelated matter, in quotation marks, and decided to help out Hallahan when uh, interviewing Bailey. And now Bauer would go on to be, I think he was police commissioner later on. If he wasn't police commissioner, he was one of the important ones, head of the union or something like that. And he was well known and regarded for his interrogation techniques. So he was not, he was not got by the Fitzgerald inquiry as he was mentioned in it, but he was not necessarily like one of the ones that like had their lives ruined and shit because of crimes. But he was like very well known for, um, being able to get answers from people. So Hallahan and Bauer questioned Bailey and they managed to secure the confession from Bailey. And that was that point where I said after they'd secured the confession and then they cautioned him, these two police officers had done that. And that was before the Adelaide police had even arrived. So Hallahan, who's not officially knowing, allegedly, that this is even connected to the sundown murders manages to hold a guy in remand for eight days for no reason question him and secure a confession before the like police whose jurisdiction it was even arrived at the police station so that was heavily questioned by stephen bishop in his book the most dangerous detective the outrageous glenn patrick hallahan (laughs) such a great really great name for the book so hallahan would be transferred to the brisbane cib while the bailey trial was ongoing and he caught the eye after he caught the eye of frank bishop who was the queensland police commissioner who was forced to resign in 1969 after being dogged by allegations of corruptions and who was indeed got by the fitzgerald inquiry (laughs) and glenn hallahan was a well-known uh pal and member of the, quote, Rat Pack, who are the group of, like, super corrupt Brisbane cops that included Tony Murphy and Terry Lewis. Lewis we have spoken about before in relation to the Betty Shanks murder. Um, and he got got big time by the Fitzgerald <laughs> Inquiry. And, he uh, got got. Is imprisoned for corruption and other illegal wheelie-dealies. So in Matthew Condon's book, Three Crooked Kings, which is, like, the bible the like documentary expose book series about the fitzgerald inquiry and police corruption which was based around these interviews that matthew condon did with terry lewis um matthew condon actually asked terry lewis about hallahan and bauer and the whole sundown murder situation and terry lewis stated that he thought that hallahan and bauer were more than capable of framing bailey for the sundown murders so that's from the horse's mouth Uh, In 2013, Stephen Bishop made an official petition to the governor of South Australia to posthumously pardon Raymond John Bailey. Uh, The evidence, he gave a whole bunch, there was like a big list, I'll link it in the show notes, you can go read it yourself, the evidence used to support this uh, petition, I'm just going to include the stuff that I find the most interesting, because it's my podcast and I can do what I want. So (laughs) this included a list of items, um, a list of times that Glenn Hallahan was found to have either lied to the courts or otherwise coerced confessions, including another time in 1958 when uh, Hallahan was found to have induced a man to plead guilty to a charge. That's the legalese quote. I don't know what happened there. In 1961, he gave a magistrate a written confession by a man named Anthony Kavanagh, who had pleaded guilty to stealing some money from Lennon's Hotel in Brisbane. The hotel later discovered that the money was not actually stolen. In the case of Hendricus Plump, which we have actually also talked about in relation to the Alison Baden-Clay case. So this guy Plump, if you'll remember, 
uh, went swimming with his wife and his wife drowned. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and then Plump, like, he had a mistress and he, like, immediately uh, went for a life insurance and stuff like that. Um, but Plump wasn't actually charged for that murder until quite a, a while after that happened. And in the meantime, he was busy being charged with rape. And in, busy. in that rape trial that he was convicted for rape and then um, it was appealed and then Glenn Hallahan concealed a statement from the courts which caused the court of appeal to overturn Plump's conviction. So that's not good. Um, in 1963, the, Queensland, uh, the Court of Queensland offered a unanimous decision that Hallahan had committed fraud at the Brisbane Magistrates Court by making a false statement in a case against a man named Gary William Campbell. Um, in addition to all the Hallahan staff, Bishop points to some pretty big discrepancies between Bailey's confession that he gave to Hallahan um, and what the physical evidence shows, um, most namely that the postmortem demonstrated that the victims were shot at close range while lying down. And Bailey said that he had shot, he had heard a noise, turned around, shot um, Thomas Whelan, and then had shot Wendy and Thyra when they had like rushed at him basically. But yeah, they were shot while lying down. So obviously that doesn't make any sense. No. Um, also, the tracks made by the man at the scene were said to be anywhere between a size 7 and a size 10. And he had a tiny foot, didn't he? Yes, he wore a size 5 and a half to size 6 shoe. But that information was given by Bailey himself in the unsworn statement, meaning the not official testimony right. that he gave at the very end of the trial. So the governor of South Australia was not very swayed by Bishop's argument and Bailey remains officially the killer of Thyra Bowman and then by association also of Wendy Bowman and Thomas Whelan. Bishop is still fighting that good fight though. Uh, I think you can sign something that said that he didn't do it. I'm not sold. I'm not sold. I don't. You're not sold that he didn't do it or that he did? I'm not sold that he didn't do it. Like... You know, Glenn, the outrageous Glenn Patrick Hallahan may be a corrupt cop, but like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not. I don't find any of it convincing in either way. I think. No, I think officially nobody it's, did it. I feel it. very. Um, I feel very grey about it. Like I don't feel like he definitely did, or he definitely didn't. Yeah, and he didn't have any. Like I feel like the only reason, I don't know, the only reason that he would do it, it would be to rob them. And he was, like, up in their car and, like, there was all this money and stuff in the car and he didn't rob them. So it's, like, why would he do it? Yeah. Um, he had his, like, wife in the car with him. And that's, I think that's son... what's tripping me. It's, like, a guy traveling with his wife and child. Yeah. Unless the wife's in on it. Like, unless the wife's in on it. And that's what they tried to say, that, like, she had driven the car, like, the vanguard across the road. Um, right. But then he said that and she, she was couldn't never drive. Like... Was she interviewed as a... She was never... She, inter was, yeah. she was interviewed by um, her the people at Mount Isa, but she was not called up as a witness, and by she actually Adelaide. didn't even, like, attend the trial oh. or anything like that. She was what? just like... Yeah, and so when he said um, to the I police... I mean, I guess because, because she's his spouse, so she can't testify. Not 100% sure if we have that here. Um, oh, okay. But too much law and order. <laughs> too much law and order. But when he said, like, his, like, wild thing that was like, no, but I killed the real killer... Um, she actually didn't even know that he had been taken from Adelaide Jail to Alice Springs. And then when the, like, I think it was even just the press were like, what do you think about it, Mrs. Bailey? She was like, I literally have just didn't know. Out. Like, nobody told, told me. And she also said that her husband had never taken her into his confidences. So take oh. that as you will. 
So that's the story. I thought it was very interesting. It was it was unintentionally timely with the whole police corruption conversations we have going on at the yeah. moment. Um, I don't know. I just don't yeah, know. Yeah, neither. It definitely didn't happen the way that Bailey said that it happened, but also why did they wash oh, all I the found where they're buried. Yes, on their finder grave. Yeah. They don't have Marion there. I've got Thyra, Sally Bowman, Wendy, Margaret Bowman. Uh-huh. And then Hubert, our man Hubert Nigel, married another woman named Eunice after all of this. And then when you go on, oh, I can't remember what, web, what website it was, but Marion wasn't on Find a Grave. And so I went to another website, insert I've name. Got, of, oh, yeah, she's, in, she's buried North Road Cemetery. They didn't say anything about, like, the year that she was born or anything, and I had to go to, like, no, another website. No, it just website. says died 27th of June, 1978. Yes, and then I had to go to another website to see when she was born, um, which is 1931, I think, but it said on that website that her mother was Eunice, but that doesn't work because they weren't married at that time. So oh. somebody needs to sort out their genealogy so true crime Please podcasters can use the information for free. And I found free. the Raymond Bailey petition on stevebishop.net. Yep, so you can sign it. If you are swayed, if you feel very passionately. Yeah. I think that it probably wouldn't hurt nobody if they reopened the case and reviewed it, but I also don't think that they would ever find... I don't think they... I don't know how much more new information they would get, but it's always good to get a fresh set of eyes on it. Yeah, and I think it wouldn't be bad to be like, well... We're not saying Bailey didn't do it, but we're also saying I think in a modern court there is no way on Jesus Christ that he would convict No, I feel like there's too much doubt. I don't think he would get convicted. Yeah. I think we would spend a lot more than 96 minutes deliberating. Yeah. But a very interesting case. Wow, really interesting. Mm, I was very intrigued by it. Good job. I mean, Mm, an Ellen episode's always a good episode. Um, I also forgot to say in our last episode we got a hilarious review on the – apple podcast app um that made me it just really goes to show the like the people that our podcast angers we had a nice um it's so funny it says we got a really really stunning review on the 3rd of june from blake james so stunning and um he's um he or she has asked um or they um have asked if we can do some more lgbt um qia Absolutely. doll. most definitely. Um, this one that we got on Wednesday, it says, perhaps take up a baking or craft podcast. First off, can't craft. Second off, can barely bake. Mm, yeah, big mood. Yeah. And then apparently we show no respect. That's all right. That's fine. That's fine. I think a podcast. Baking and fuck how boring i don't know what you do on a podcast about baking or craft i feel like it's very much a visual and or tasting medium rather than auditory medium (laughs) i made this pie it was really good you can't look at it or eat it though (laughs) please donate to our patreon (laughs) um cool great job um so we'll be back in two weeks time do we have more episodes that we need to do before we get cracking on our actual thing that we're going to do? Probably. No. Yes. No? One? Yes. One. Yeah, because we've done six and there are seven states and territories. Where haven't we done? Queensland. Oh, that'll be it, wouldn't it? The one we're at, well, not me, spatially. Yeah. All right. Well, so we have one more episode and then we get cracking on Real the life. next phase of Mitlu. 
Um, thank you all so much for your support. Make sure you get in contact with us on Facebook uh, or on Instagram, Murder in the Land of Oz, uh, Murder in the Land of Oz at gmail.com if you want to send us an email. Go send us a really lovely review. Let us know if you actually would like us to do a baking or crafting podcast. I think that would be incredibly boring and would be really terrible at it. But, you know, just let us know. As we said um, uh, many times, we're just riding the true crime wave until we can have a, like, dating advice podcast. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes. Because that's what you need to hear more about our personal lives. Um, super stunning. Alrighty, guys. Well, we'll see you in two weeks. Goodbye. 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 Good friends. Goodbye. Friends, goodbye. <laughs> Available now from Manola Theatre. Begotten, a five-part audio drama. There's a moment when a gift becomes a curse. I don't recognise my body. I was born with something broken inside me. I threw all the knives away yesterday. It played out in my head like a film, like something that had already happened. That was the day he began to follow me home. It was a betrayal, I knew that. But I did it anyway. I've lost track of how many nights I've spent down here. I'm on my way to tell him. But surely you know by now what actually happened. Alice. Eileen. Clea. Hazel. Leisha. Audiences are calling begotten emotional, raw, powerful, spellbinding, and heart-touching. Stage Whispers praises the visual images that sing and says, We are left dancing with the ghosts of the five women, their hopes and dreams, the compromises they've made and lived with. Begotten is released fortnightly via your favourite podcasting platform or can be accessed in full at manolatheatre.com.au. Get your broadband moving all around your home so you can start flexing in the living room. And that sourdough can start rising in the kitchen. For streaming from the front door to the attic, connect with our best ever Wi-Fi all around your home. Sky Broadband. Your world is limitless. For more information, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. At Accounting Technicians Ireland, we believe it's never too late to study for a professional qualification. Whether you're working in a finance role and want to upskill, or looking to return to the workplace after time away, at ATI you can study online, full-time or part-time, when and where suits you. To find out more and register for our diploma courses starting this September, visit accountingtechniciansireland.ie. Start your journey with ATI. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.